This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate or support us through Patreon. Hey, For the Wild community, Ayana here. Before we begin this episode, I want to take a moment to thank our friends at Mountain Rose Herbs for supporting this podcast. Some of you may know that my journey with the show, which used to be called Unlearn and Rewild, started with my awakening to the plant world through herbalism and my first plant teacher, the late Cascade Anderson Geller. So it feels close to my heart that seven years later, Mountain Rose is by our side. Mountain Rose Herbs offers high-quality, organic, and sustainably harvested herbs, spices, teas, essential oils, and botanical goods. Beginning in 1987, Mountain Rose Herbs made it their mission to provide plant lovers with exceptional organic botanicals harvested with the utmost respect for the places they grow and the people who grow them. Mountain Rose Herbs is generously offering for the wild listeners 10% off of their next purchase by using discount code WILD10 at checkout. You can learn about Mountain Rose Herbs and their offerings at mountainroseherbs.com. All right, now on to the show. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Jahawe Bertoli, a National Geographic explorer, filmmaker, photographer, and music producer from Kenya, specializing in wildlife and the underwater world. You know, people have lived in these areas of wildlife and have interacted, and those are the real stories we need to be talking about, because conservation has never really been about, oh, it's been focused too much about wildlife and not enough about people. Because unless the people around the areas that you're trying to conserve are happy with what you're doing, you're not going to conserve that environment. And unless you understand the history and the stories and the knowledge that those communities around those wild areas have, how can you possibly conserve it? Jahawe strives to portray the beauty, power, and vulnerability of wild environments through his work, which has taken him around the world. His current focus is on telling African wildlife stories from the perspectives of the local communities, highlighting African storytelling. In 2019, Bertoli was awarded a Vulcan Visiting World Filmmakers Scholarship from Jackson Wild Summit and was also the co-host of the annual Grand Teton Awards. Well, Jahawe, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to have you with us as we are talking across the world together. Um, thank you for having me on the show. I'm incredibly happy to be here. So to start off, in the Western imagination, we often think about Kenya as the quintessential representation of Africa. We picture open savannas, golden light, and picturesque herds of elephants, wildebeest, and lions, but... This fixed image obscures Kenya's many dimensions. 
I admit that I've never given so much thought to the endless world that awaits beyond Kenya's shorelines. So to begin our conversation, can you share a little bit about the sheer diversity of Kenya's marine and coastal ecosystems, as well as the rich social and cultural histories that have been birthed by these waters? You know, that's an incredibly interesting observation because also growing up in Kenya, you know, I was incredibly privileged to spend a lot of my time on the coast. We had a little beach house in this wild part of um, the southern coast of Kenya called Wa. And, you know, in between, I spent most of my schooling in Nairobi, but we would get there and it was completely wild. And I used to spend all my time, you know, as a child exploring. And sort of going back to Nairobi as you grew up, you know, you kind of forget that Kenya has this incredible coastline because you get caught up in our other side, which is an incredibly immense and beautiful terrestrial wildlife scene. And so I spent the part of my youth in music, but when I came into actually film and photography, I did spend a lot of time working out of the Masai Mara and um, the Samburu and even in Tanzania, focusing on terrestrial wildlife and everything that we get to know. I mean, I, my speciality was filming cheetahs. I've done a lot of time with cheetahs and also I've done a lot of time with lions. But the more I thought about it and the more I felt about it is that I was hearing stories and what I remember growing up and seeing our coastline. Kenya has an incredible little coastline, about 536 kilometers long. But we have incredible fringing reefs. We've got dolphins, we've got turtles, we've got humpback whale migration, which not many people know about. And for me, what was the most interesting thing was that no one talks about our coastline you know everyone who comes to Kenya comes for the safari experience but our coastline is never really spoken about and in that happening there's no talk about conserving our coastline because it's never really in the same sort of vein of conservation as you have in terrestrial wildlife and that's what really brought me into trying to highlight the coastal environment of Kenya I'd like to orient listeners to your film, Bahari Yeto, which means our ocean in Swahili, and tells the story of the ocean from an elder Swahili fisherman who has lived alongside the changing seascape and has experienced its impact firsthand. And this plotline already greatly differs from so many mainstream films on our changing world that are incredibly data-driven, but this distinction feels important, especially for coastal communities who are often relegated to statistics on dwindling fish species or rising sea levels. So I'm wondering, what is the status of Kenya's seafaring culture, and how have you seen storytelling be a conduit for rekindling intergenerational custodianship and earth and ocean renewal amidst climate change? So with this film, we're really hoping basically to work on those levels. We never actually set out to make a film that was based on Swahili storytelling, the ocean changes. Literally a few years ago, we'd heard about this incredible story of the increase of humpback whales off the Kenyan coast. And it's a story that not many people knew, and it's sort of linked in with a few of our colleagues who are working in um, Southern Africa. And we've realized that the East African migration of humpback whales had gone from nearly extinct to what we learned last year was over 30,000 individuals. Hmm. And from that, we had more and more, year on year, we had more and more humpback whales coming to Kenya in their migration to carve and breed. Hmm. So we had set out to make this film on humpback whales, but part of what we had wanted to do was make sure it was socially relevant and culturally relevant. And as much as, you know, science can give you answers and give you data, we thought that, yes, the scientists have been studying this for only so many years. But if we want to really understand how long these humpback whales have been coming to Kenya, we need to talk to the local communities and the fishing communities that have lived off this coastline because they will have the evidence and they will have the stories of how often these whales have been coming. Mm -hmm. 
And through that journey, we did find incredible anecdotal stories about humpback whales. But what we really found and what happened a lot with especially the elder fishermen we were interviewing was that there were other issues they preferred to talk about. So we'd be there trying to say, okay, we would like to talk about humpback whales. So like, okay, yes, we see them every now and again, but this is what's happening off our ocean. It's getting a lot harder to find fish. We are seeing a lot more people who are, are not from our local community who are fishing badly. You know, we are seeing destructive fishing methods. We're seeing coral bleaching. We're seeing all this stuff and we're seeing a lot more pollution. And when we started to hear all these stories, we realized that actually our story about humpback whales was actually not relevant to the community we wanted to actually make these films for. Mm. And actually what was really going on in the ocean. And we had people first basically telling us that as an older generation, we're afraid that the younger generation that's coming don't understand just how badly the ocean has changed. And once you're sort of told that from the perspective of elders in the village, you realize that, okay, we came into this wanting to do a humpback whale film, but actually there's a much bigger story here. And there's a story that's coming from the community, from these people who you're, you know, you're interacting with, and it's a much more powerful story that needs to be told because it's echoing around the world. And we need the younger generation, our generation, you know, to be able to understand that the ocean environment we're working with at the moment is not a healthy one mm-hmm. and therefore it shouldn't be considered as the status quo. So that's kind of how our film ended up where it is now. In the film, the fisherman mourns that the ocean is dying and we know that fish stocks in coral reefs along the coast of eastern Africa have been overfished. I was reading that 70% of the species are below sustainable levels, but information on ocean health seems to be just incredibly scattered and contradictory. For example, some cite small-scale artisanal fishers as being the main contributors behind exploitation. But I also imagine that artisanal fishers can be a part of the solution. So I'd like to ask what are the driving factors that are causing habitat degradation, overfishing, and pollution along the coasts? So there's many factors driving that. On one stage, and I think probably the biggest stage that we need to talk about is that a lot of East African countries have given fishing rights to certain countries, and those fishing boats never really dock and actually say how much fish they've caught in those areas. Mm-hmm. So data on in terms of our fisheries, in terms of international boats operating in our waters, never really comes through. And what that means is that a boat that's maybe a Chinese or Vietnamese or Spanish can fish in our waters. But I mean, I remember a few years ago, we had 22 different licensed boats swimming in our waters and only four docked in Mombasa to declare their catch. Most of them docked in Seychelles, but, you know, it's not our jurisdiction. So what that means is we don't have a true figure of what's being taken out of our waters from an international fishing perspective. Now, from a local perspective, it's kind of easier to figure out what's happening, but it's a lot easier also to point your finger at your local artisanal fishermen to say you are depleting the reefs and you're depleting this and that because we're not seeing these kind of fish. But often in that case, they're being pushed to actually target those fish species that are left because that's what's left. So that's one level of it because there's, there's, it's a very multidimensional kind of issue that we're dealing with. Because also within specific areas and sort of the work we've been doing in the Lama Archipelago, there was kind of local knowledge in terms of we used to we fish here like this, we fish there like this, we do this, that, the other. And for centuries we've done it. Now you can have a fishing crew that comes from still Kenya's waters, from Kenya, from a couple hundred kilometers down the coast, who will come to fish in our waters, but because we don't have any real 
Coast Guard or fisheries management that will actually go out to the fishing grounds. So you have fishing crews coming in with very destructive fishing methods. We've got ring netting and drag netting. And for them, it's a different issue because they're not doing it in their part of the coast. And so now you're getting clash between local fisheries and it's it's interlocal fisheries, but a local from Lamu and a local from Malindi, and they're doing different things. And how do you manage that? So on one scale, we have a level that all our fisheries, kind of the main massive fishing that's going on is not really being recorded. And our local artisanal fishermen are being blamed for it. But in that level, there's also a blame level that's you're coming into our waters doing this and doing that. And it's all about management and how you can actually understand what's being caught. And it's a very tricky, tricky thing. The biggest thing, so talking to you from the Lamo Archipelago at the moment, we're right up on the um, Somali border. And what was an incredible little thing, which I, I really do love to talk about, is so there was piracy off Somalia. And we are right up there. And that is the confluence of, of you know, two big currents. All the big fishery boats, in terms of your Chinese, your Thai, your Spanish, all those big boats didn't come around this area for the years that the pirates were active, which meant that our little part of the coastline had an incredible breather zone for our fisheries because there were no fishing boats that came up. We went from 26 to four licensed fishing vessels off of Kenya. And I think that's a pretty incredible thing because our fisheries came back within a couple of years the main point i'm trying to sort of say is that our fisheries have an incredible resilience to come back if they're given the opportunity to and the right management Mm -hmm. this reminds me of the conversation i had with shannon service about her film ghost fleet with these boats that never would dock and yeah just the unaccountability of how many fish were being taken, and the illegality of it all. So thank you for sharing that. Now, Kenya witnesses the simultaneous migration of both wildebeest and humpback whales, known as the twin migrations. But I'd especially like to talk about the migration patterns and status of humpback whales who stop in the waters off of Kenya amidst their journey from the Antarctic to equatorial waters. Can you share with us a little bit about this journey and how deeply embedded they are in coastal folklore and whether or not their migration patterns are significantly changing? So this has been something I've been focusing on for a while. Now, until I started this whole idea of doing a humpback whale film off of Kenya, I hadn't really researched that much into what this meant. And for a lot of people, when you talk about a humpback whale migration in Kenya, they don't quite believe, you know, it's like it's not a known thing. And it's mm-hmm. only very recently in the last couple of years that, you know, we've finally had sort of proper research happening and there's been, you know, people talking about it. But one of the things I learned on this whole journey of discovery and going to South Africa is that off of Durban in South Africa, there was one of the biggest whaling stations ever. And towards the late 70s, I think, they had literally decimated the East African humpback route. That there was very few whales that used to migrate up. And they, in fact, stopped the whole humpback sort of fishery because they couldn't find the whales. And then that went on to the moratorium of whaling, and now we're kind of a couple of years down the line. So when they did this survey at the end at the end of the 70s, they had ex- basically thought there was about 300 to 500 humpback whales left on our migratory route. Last year, a study came out, which was pioneered in South Africa, showed that our, our route is up to pretty much over 30,000 humpback whales. Mm. So with the moratorium on whaling, we've literally allowed this incredible sort of bloom in, in in a marine species that was was here and it's fantastic in terms of you know and year on year and when we decided to go out to make a film on humpback whales we kind of saw that year on year we were getting incredible numbers and we we're going to now 
it's not about whether we find the handbags, it's about the conditions. Mm. And last year was an abnormal year. And we had what's called the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is very similar to El Nino. And we, in our entire filming month, we didn't film them because they, they weren't here. But it's not to say it's a bad thing because South Africa had the most incredible year in terms of humpback whale sightings. And we went out to, to try and research all these stories. But what we realized is that actually there weren't these stories in the culture of the Swahilis in terms of really deep and meaningful stories of humpback whales. And even in the generations we were dealing with, they didn't have these stories because, you know, we were working off a time when humpback whales were incredibly rare. But we moved to La Archipelago and we were talking to a lot of fishermen here and, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we do. There's a certain time of year we actually see them and they're here and they're actually quite harmless apart from the fact that they jump a lot. But, you know, they're, they're very gentle creatures. And that was the beauty in terms of what we were looking for is, you know, there's this connection of they're not a threat. And that it's, it's a seasonal thing and, you know, it could be a remembrance of old culture. Globally, Kenya is known for its terrestrial wildlife, but these can have been declining steadily. Between 1977 and 2016, populations from all major species in Kenya declined by nearly 70%. So I'm curious about what is driving this ongoing decline, but more specifically, I'd really like to talk about what the future of wildlife looks like amidst ongoing development, or how development is impacting wildlife in places like Kenya, where the government is investing in sizable and extensive infrastructure projects that would create networks of roads, dams, and power lines across the wildlife areas. And I want to recognize, of course, that this is no black and white topic. It's very much enmeshed in the reality of social and economic welfare, as well as the realms of political objectives and foreign interest. But can you speak to the current status of wildlife conservation in Kenya and whether or not development plays a role in declining population numbers? So basically, Kenya is on the path of a developing country and infrastructurally and with certain development goals and economic goals where we're trying to move forward. Now, Kenya is in a very interesting space because we're also considered to be at the forefront of wildlife conservation. And wildlife and people are very interlinked here to a certain degree outside of sort of our main cities. But what we're seeing is this sort of balance of is this good for the economy or is this good for 
environment. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the way it's being played out is is a very black and white way. It's either one or the other. And it's not that there's the huge grayscale in between. And what's beautiful about Kenya, though, is that you have an incredible amount of people who work in the grayscale and who cannot accept that it's basically one or the other and who end up calling out government and this and that. You know, we're supposed to be at the forefront of, you know, terrestrial conservation and this and that. And so Kenya should be pioneering the way in sort of conserving wildlife. But at the same time, there's a disconnect between government agencies and what's actually being implemented on the ground. So we're literally in a, I don't know, I think the best way to say it is that we are kind of in a milkshake because a lot is being talked about and a lot is at the forefront. And, you know, we are actually talking about how do you balance economic value of your wildlife areas compared to the potential economic growth of communities? And do those two need to be separate? Or can they be the same? Can they be interlinked? And can you save your community? Like, can you save your environment and uplift your community at the same time? We're currently on a big fight with the Nairobi National Park in Nairobi because it's the only national park in a capital city in the world. And they want to do a whole bunch of development. But surely, you know, we've got a lot of stakeholders involved talking about how do we conserve this as an actual wild place and still meet our goals for development and this and that. And what I think is often overlooked and which is incredibly important that we forget is that wild places, wild heritage and our wild areas should be part of a new vision of the future because we often overlook how important they are to human well-being. You get out into a park and all of a sudden you feel kind of relaxed. Like you could have had a really bad day and you sort of drive out into a national park and you feel good. Mm -hmm. And we need to start looking at these kind of human needs in terms of economically it may not make sense. But what we've learned in this last pandemic and everything, economics doesn't make sense anyway. Mm -hmm. And therefore that shouldn't be what should be the riding factor of what we base everything off. As humans, the people who've literally, you know, I've spent a lot of time researching origins of humanity and where we've come from. And our base as people is not about economics. It's about feeling. It's about feeling home. It's about culture. It's about feeling a sense of worth and a sense of belonging. And more and more people are understanding that parks give us that. And we need those places. And, you know, the, the big financial people don't want us to talk about this, but it, it is, we need to be more connected to nature. And Nairobi is an incredibly interesting sort of case study because we have a national park in the capital city. And through this whole pandemic, people are starting to realize that actually our park is more important than the new big skyscraper or the new restaurant or the new fancy lounge bar because that's what makes us feel home. Mm. And that's hugely important. Yes. Mm. Well, because the history of wildlife conservation and tourism throughout all of Africa really is an incredibly unjust one, I imagine that a decent amount of the population in Kenya must view conservation as a somewhat exploitative industry that largely benefits wealthy landowners and tourists alike. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how your work is rooting wildlife and conservation efforts in local communities, especially in regards to marine conservation and your organization, East African Ocean Explorers. What are current attitudes on conservation and how are you working to prove that conservation can strengthen community lands, wildlife, and ancestral and cultural heritage? So you've literally just hit the nail on the head of one of the biggest issues we're facing. Mm. Conservation and wildlife filmmaking in Africa is kind of seen as a colonial vestige mm. because it's not representative of what's really happening and it's not representative of people on the ground. And, and it's so tricky because, you know, I know a lot of people who work in conservation and, you know, 
we can talk about the sort of the black and white divide, but I know a lot of people who have grown up in Kenya and are Kenyans and they may be white or black or in the mix of things. And they are doing incredible work. Now in Kenya, I think what is important to differentiate it is that it's not a black and white divide so much so that it is a financial divide. And and there's there's relics of colonialism. And also when it comes to wildlife filmmaking, there's huge relics of colonialism. But the goal is there, but not quite. So when we talk about sort of wildlife filmmaking in the bush and this and that and the other, we are often trying to portray a view of what we think is a pristine environment and what we've been taught as a pristine environment. And the danger of wildlife filmmaking is that if you run with those lines, which a lot of the big broadcasters have, you're perpetuating this theory that wildlife and humanity and the cultures that live in these areas are different, are two different stories, but they're the same. And often with a lot of modern wildlife filmmaking and retrogressive wildlife filmmaking is to try to separate the two but it's not the case. You know, people have lived in these areas of wildlife and have interacted, and those are the real stories we need to be talking about because conservation has never really been about, oh, it's been focused too much about wildlife and not enough about people. Because unless the people around the areas that you're trying to conserve are happy with what you're doing, you're not gonna conserve that environment. And unless you understand the history and the stories and the knowledge that those communities around those wild areas have, how can you possibly conserve it? You know, we can come in with our thoughts of knowledge that we know and we've studied and we've well, so theoretically this must work. But you have communities that have lived with these wild animals and lived in these environments for centuries and they'll be like, well, Actually, no, from our perspective, this is actually what works. We need to listen more to the cultures that have lived with these animals. But it's the generation that could be lost, which is the elder generation, because the younger generation don't have that knowledge. And we're at the state when, especially this is what we're trying to do, is we need to record that old knowledge, because people lived in harmony for hundreds of thousands of years before we even got here. So from a, I, I know I went a bit far, but from a local perspective, you know, we are trying to do it in a sense that you need to bring in, it's not you're bringing in knowledge, you're rediscovering local knowledge of how people used to manage these environments. And it's a knowledge that the young generation may not have, but it's a lot easier to tell them, well, this is how it used to be when it's knowledge that came from their community, which was how they used to do it. And that is the knowledge that is at a threat to being lost in terms of how the world is moving. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people in communities don't quite realize that that old knowledge and that knowledge from the elders is actually a, a lot more valuable than even new science. And new science could learn from that. Yes. So it has to be collaborative in terms of we need to understand what the elders knew and from the older generation combine it with what we knew now, what we know now with our new technology. We need to meet in the middle and combine the two because one side can learn from the other and that goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Now, typically conservation is understood as a large scale and often foreign initiative that is completely divorced from the community but this approach luckily is losing momentum, even amidst a time when we desperately need to be protecting the last vestiges of land and life. But I think capital C conservation is on the way out because it's been so deeply rooted in the individual. So I'd like to now talk about locally managed marine areas and community-based conservation. How effective is community-based conservation and how does it prevent the sort of colonial land grabs that have otherwise been so dominant in global conservation? Community-based conservation is the, the way forward. 
but it's community-based conservation, understanding that all parties involved understand all the aspects of what you're doing. Now, what we've lost along the way and what we're trying to rediscover is that there was an optimum time for us when there was a certain amount of people who could do this and this and this, and we knew how sustainable it was, and it was fine. We're over that, and times are moving forward, and we're also in a very strange time where it's not really about conservation. Conservation can be about money, and organizations are all sort of bullying for funding, and in that bullying for funding, they kind of lose focus on where they should be focusing on, which is the community, which kind of knows what they should be doing. Yet you want to sort of put in a sort of new marine protected area, this, that, the other, because you're bullying for funding. So before we had these big bullish organizations that really wanted to dictate to local communities how they should be conserving their own environments, rather than listening to local communities, who could tell you how they could conserve those local environments because they've been doing it one stage. Now, another level is that now those local communities have generations that are coming through that also have lost that knowledge. So when we're talking about community conservation and making sure that the community understands it, you need to make sure you're getting that, the knowledge of the elders who have it. You need to make sure that you're kind of also incorporating that with modern science and also science of, of folklore of these communities, which often correlate incredibly well. You know, when you sort of look at these old Swahili cultures, they had places they wouldn't fish at these times of the year, especially they would, this, that, you know, they had, if you look at it scientifically, they had no take zones, they had, you know, seasonal fishing times. So it's once you realize that modern science and traditional knowledge actually correlate and work together, then it's about bringing that into sort of the new generation to realize, because often, you know, people think that, oh, my generation, my, my culture, this is backwards, but it's not. We have huge knowledge in Africa. We have huge knowledge around the world about our environments because those, as people interacting with their environments, you've known it for a long time. But often what happened was that knowledge was never appreciated. And now it needs to be because it actually correlates with what modern science actually says. And so you need to be able to bridge the gap between modern science and traditional knowledge, bring that together and understand that it's actually basically the same. And then that's where you can create a management plan of what you are trying to do. Because no one wants to completely destroy their environment that they survive off. And once you understand that, then we can hopefully get communities working together, whether it's a scientific community and a local cultural community. And yes, there's certain cases where they really want to exploit it, and that's a whole other story, and we're going after sort of the baddies in international fisheries. But from a local level, from a community level and a cultural level, People need to realize that they're all fighting the same fight. And if we can all figure out how to share resources and not just try and fight for resources because we're trying to prove the same thing, but on different budgets, if we can all put all that in the same budget, we'd figure that out a lot quicker. I'm thinking back to your work with Bahari Yeto and the eternal wisdom that is all around us. 
How did you first become enamored with ancient rock gongs and what is awakened when we revitalize instruments and rhythms that are potentially tens of thousands of years old? How has this creative endeavor guided you? The whole rock gong project is just happened by chance. When I was younger, before I started my film and photography, I was a DJ and I worked a lot in music production and then sort of went into a musical film. And then I completely left it. And, and a couple of years ago, we, we happened to be in, in the Moro copies in Tanzania and the Serengeti and a very well-known rock gong and sort of played this instrument. And it's like, wow, this sounds incredible. But what really captivated me around that was, you know, we went from that rock gong to not thinking about it to a few days later being with the Hadzabe, which are basically our human root. And finding another one, the most incredible one. And it's sort of, it's been the realization that the complexity that we give ourselves in terms of who we are as humans has been around for centuries, not even centuries, millennia. We are talking about a couple of thousand years. And the kind of conversation that's burned off that is that we believe, and it's, it's a conversation that's happening now, it's so easy for us to other everyone else mm -hmm. that is not like us. But what is like us? So, you know, I, I, I as a pretty stark sort of comparison, my mother is black, my father was white, I'm brown. In terms of genetic variants, to change from skin color to skin color doesn't take a very long time. And we have now started to trace and through a bunch of genetic variances and this and that, we can realize that blonde hair, blue eyes wasn't that long ago. We basically all, and we've traced it genetically, came from Africa. When we realize that something as easy as skin color that we used to judge each other can change on two or three generations, that is in a one human lifetime, I think we're kind of looking at the wrong thing in terms of what separates us. Humanity all comes from Africa. That we have <laughs> proof. Our genetic epicenter is Africa. We're all Africans. The offshoots of Neanderthal, Denisovan, all of that came from the African continent. So surely if we'd stop looking at these minority traits that differentiate us, and if people knew 98% of human genetic variants happens on the African continent, mm. that means 2% of the variants of the entire human race, well, racism is actually not, there's no such thing as race, but 2% of the entire human species makes up the rest of the world, everything we've used to differentiate ourselves, skin color, language, this, that, the other, is meaningless because we all came from the same root. And we are all people, we're all human beings. Once, and I think that's what the first rock project is, is what we're really trying to do is because we are tracing instruments and artwork and things, you know, things that we would consider human. Music, artwork, beliefs, all of this. We can, we're trying to hopefully trace this before we had our genetic variants in, in terms of skin color, all these silly things we use to differentiate ourselves. Once people realize that we were capable of incredible music, incredible artwork, incredible beating long before we had a change in skin color or hair or whatever, which whatever we, the silly things we use. And I hope that makes people realize that humanity is humanity. Everything we've used to differentiate ourselves is actually meaningless because we all came from the same root. And that root was before we had anything to try and differentiate ourselves off. So someone who went to, you know, the north 
and had to develop, you know, lighter skin and blue eyes to handle that climate is exactly the same as the same person who stayed in Africa who kept their black skin. We've become too involved in the little differences rather than looking at the big picture because the big picture, and when you look at genetics, when you look at the human history, when you look at artwork and beadwork and the human mind and how creative the human mind is, that all happened well before any of the things we use to differentiate ourselves. And once people realize that, I hope and I hopefully truly believe that people realize that it's not about the color of your skin or where you're from or who you are. It's about your mind because the human mind developed well before anything that we used to differentiate ourselves now. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that and it was really beautiful and now before we close Jahaway, I'm wanting to just open the floor to you and you know ask if there's anything else that's on your mind on your heart I know we're going through some really turbulent times that seem to only speed up in this moment of our history and so I just want to be able to give you the floor to speak to whatever else you want to bring into this conversation. Thank you, Anna. That's, um, you know, just, just to kind of reiterate what I, I was talking about, it's humanity is a, is a point in time on our world. And when you kind of look back at our, our history, our evolution, we're in a rapidly changing environment. And what we all need to realize is that whether you come from a different background or this or that or the other, we, we tend to look at things in an incredibly short-sighted way. But life is much bigger, and the way things go is much bigger. I mean, with everything that's happened recently, I mean, in the last couple of weeks, we're kind of like looking back at 100 years and saying those people were wrong, but that's, that the mindset is changing. And we're at an incredibly powerful point in our human lives and I, and I would hate for us to miss this point to realize that we all need to sit down and study our genetics we need to sit down and study and to realize that the entire theory of race is wrong and that human genetics we are all the same we can trace it we are all part of a big mishmash of you know evolution that's going on and I don't have I mean, I won't even say evolution because some people may be offended by that, but we're all people. The minute you can sit down and talk to someone who you've never sort of spoken to before, we are the same. We all have the same minds. We all have the same heritage. We're all based off about 2,000 people who came off Turkana a couple hundred thousand years ago. And when you sort of break back the barriers that divide us, the story, the person, the humanity, the, the, you know, that little feeling that sort of gives you that, you know, when you really like someone, you're like, oh, I really like that person. That is universal. That is something that connects us all. And when we're going back further than when we had a different skin color and all of that, those are all our ancestors. Every single human being on this world comes from those people hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we can fight, we can scream, we can kick, we can do whatever we want and we can be stupid about it. But stop, think. We all came from the same people. We came from the same people that gave us enough time to have adaptations to our environments. We talk about adaptations to environments and animals like, oh, they've adapted to environments and this and this, you know. We did the same thing. But it doesn't mean we're not from the same stock. So let's stop being superficial. Let's stop looking at one of the most insignificant changes in terms of the human genome, which is your skin color, and realize we're all the same people capable of love, capable of hate, capable of everything, but we come from the same soul. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Shahawe, for spending this time with us. It was such a beautiful conversation and 
we went so many places and I appreciate you following these threads with me. And um, yeah, I hope that we get to meet sometime again in the future. And until then, please keep up this really important work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. Um, if I have time, can I have one last anecdote? Oh, please. Yes. Take us away. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with the Hadzabi in, in Tanzania, and they are considered our human origin. And a few of them have sort of been taken out and been they've studied and, you know, shown the Western kind of world. And I've gone back home. And the one thing that was the most incredible thing that they'd ever told me is that, you know, you guys, you've made life so complicated. You don't laugh, you don't love, you don't enjoy your, you know, everything has become an issue. Mm. And by spending time with them, they literally wake up and laugh. You're hungry, you go out and hunt, or, you know, someone gathers a, a tuber. They're the most happy people in the world. And these are the people we run around studying as, you know, our genetic epicenter. Life is to be lived in the moment. And I know our lives are not, it's very easy for me to say this, we're sitting in, in the island of Kenya, but we've made our lives difficult, but we need to sort of reconnect with who we are properly. And I think this virus is helping us do it, but... There's a big step into sort of realizing what we are and who we are as a species. I think everyone needs to sort of think about that. What makes you really happy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Stores. The music you heard today was from Jahawi Bertoli. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team, Francesca Glassbell, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger. <laughs>